Hello and welcome to another edition of the Paddock Pass Podcast. I'm your host this week, Jensen Bueller of Asphalt and Rubber. And once again, we have a special show for you as we are obviously not on the track and racing because of the coronavirus outbreak worldwide. So we wanted to take another look back kind of into history and this time into the World Superbike Paddock. Uh, we asked a f- bunch of you on social media what your favorite races were, what your favorite seasons were, and we kind of took a little straw poll amongst the uh, Paddock Pass podcast crew, and it really came down to the 2002 World Superbike Championship. Uh, the finale at Imola is one of the most classic races in superbike history it's it's probably the gold standard by my own opinion this is a race that obviously has a lot of uh personal meaning for me because it's what got me hooked on motorcycle racing itself but it was a huge race in terms of what was happening in the championship the championship was a huge pivotal point in the time for uh superbike racing and we wanted to talk about it with you on this week's show so joining me on the microphones this week to help me talk about this amazing season and this amazing race we have gordon ritchie and steve english our regular superbike podcasting duo boys thank you for joining me on this week's show how are we doing all right how are we doing lads how are you jensen hey boys everything's good over here how about yourselves yeah good man enjoy my lockdown as much as i can yeah i think everyone's in the same boat lots of stuff to be done and uh stuff that's been put in the long finger for a long time gordo yes it's uh and i've got a lot of it believe you me i've got many years of chores to work my way through <laughs> well that's good to hear you guys are uh, doing well in these kind of crazy times uh, unfortunately there's no racing to be had so we can't see you in the uh, world superbike paddock to uh to give us the latest news there but um we're going to try and uh, fill something in this week with uh, with our show. Um, I want to talk to you guys about the 2002 World Superbike season, which is a very important season for me. Um, but it's also one of the more iconic Superbike seasons in uh, uh, racing history, really. Um, and we have the, the luxury... Gordon, you were there. Well, well, Steve and I were just babes in the world. You were you were actually there to, to witness this, this season and these races. Yeah, and um, it was a very tense season. Um, there was obviously two kind of big beasts in the field that were going to fight it all out. Um, but the way the season started, it seemed to be going to go one way and one way only, and then all of a sudden it changed, and it, you didn't really know what was going to happen. And then all of a sudden at the final round, we've got a real fight, and it turned out to be one of the best days of racing that I've ever seen, the most competitive, the most interactive the crowd loved it the riders knew what they were racing for in Ducati's back garden it was just you know quite an amazing year uh, to be and culminated with one of the the greatest race meetings has ever been at one of the most impressive tracks you can imagine yeah the uh just for a little background for our listeners we come into the 2002 season after seeing Troy Bayless and, and Colin Edwards battling out the season before Bayless getting the better of Edwards winning the championship. And when we start in 2002, it seems like that's going to be the case. Again, we see Troy dominating. We see the Ducati doing well. Um, I think Troy got 14 wins in in just about the first half of the season. Um, And it seems like it's going to be all over. And then the tide turns at Laguna and we see Colin fighting back. And it all culminates in Imola, which is, if you believe it or not, Imola was the first motorcycle race I ever watched, 
which kind of sets the bar fairly high considering how uh yeah what were you doing with that's your what life, got Jensen? me hooked uh i was in school i had just kind of discovered motorcycles i was just getting into it and uh, i had some riding buddies that were like hey come on over on saturday and sunday we'll, we'll watch motorcycle races it'll be fun we'll cook some burgers and some hot dogs and that was the end of the world superbike season um and yeah it was a it was an interesting way to to get indoctrinated into into motorcycle racing especially as an american and watching colin edwards and you know like i don't know who these racers are really but i know who the american is and so it's like yeah, i'm gonna root for my guy uh certainly a, a, a very special race but but goes down in in world superbike history that you know the showdown in imola um yeah, it's a, it's a pretty fantastic uh, season to walk through, but it's also a really interesting season for, for a lot of other reasons. It's uh, a point in time in World Superbike where we're seeing the Ducati twins dominating the field. The rules are very skewed towards uh, the V-twin engine configuration, and we're seeing manufacturers struggle or adapt, as it was uh, the case for Honda, and then Suzuki tried their hand in it a little bit. We're seeing 750cc inline fours. We're seeing the Benelli triple. Um, we have a proper tire war in the paddock. It's not just Pirelli tires, but there's Michelin and there's Dunlop as well. Um, so there's a lot of things going on in this series that are a little bit different than, than the way they are now, let's say. Um, but we saw some fantastic racing as, as a consequence of it. Yeah, and I think when you look back at the 2002 season, obviously, as you said, Jensen, it's all remembered for Imola and every time we go to Imola for World Superbike since you always see all the little memories that pop up and uh, photos from fans and photos from outlets online and things like that where it's just like oh think back to 2002 and it really was one of those pivotal before and after moments where a championship fight went right down to the wire I think pretty much every bike fan in the world was watching Imola and uh, we were able to see something that was really special but what's interesting for me is when you look back at that season obviously we all remember this great title fight that went down to the wire but Gordo I'm sure you'll be able to talk in detail about it but there weren't that many races where we actually saw Edwards and Bayless go head to head we knew that they were the two top superbike riders in the world they'd won the two championships before this but we never really saw them have that real battle on track until we went to Imola and then they were just trading paint pretty much every lap at times. Yeah, it was a strange season because this is us going back to the days of absolutely special bikes and absolutely factory teams. Big, serious efforts from all sides. Um, a waxing and waning through the year about the technical setup of the bikes and the technical prowess of the bikes. Um, and that human thing of confidence and that's, when you get a full factory bike, even if you're both on the same Michelin tyres, and you get one guy who's just got a better setup, or who's just more ready for it that weekend, or it's his particular track, then you could make more of a difference. And part of the reason we saw through the season such a change is because of the way the bikes changed through the year. Edwards really liked his 2002 bike. He said the the 2000 and 2001 bike was a bit more difficult, um, so he he eventually made the most of that but it did take him until several tests and then the end of the year to really get the best out of it just at the right time yeah because at that stage as well Gordo like 
the testing that was being done in World Superbikes was what we saw in Grand Prix level, really, where there was tyre testing, there was an awful lot of development work done on the bikes. And if you think back to this was the last year that Honda were in as a full factory outfit, and they still had just constant development all the way through the year. I think this was one of those years where after Suzuka, Edwards, as a bit of a reward for winning the eight hours, suddenly had an upgraded bike for the next round. There was all the parts that just kept coming on stream and it really was just one thing after the other the whole way through the season. Yes, um, there were limits on testing then, but that was the with all the team and the rider that was actually racing and so on. There were some limits and they had a certain number of days. Um, but they made a test in Imola uh, just before the race um, and they they realised they had a day extra so they did a snap test at Imola as well as all the testing they used to do for Michelin tyres um, and then all the development they had. Yes, the Suzuki Air was a, an even bigger cut-off point or starting point. There was a lot of work done in Japan for this superbike that would lead up to the 8 hours and then once the 8 hours was finished and you were 365 days to go to the next one, suddenly World Superbike or any other championship could get more priority in the development back home in Japan. So there was there was an awful lot of uh, testing then, yes, but at the same time it was the, you could go places in the winter, which you can't do anymore. You go far away places in the winter and use those. You did have designated tracks, but because you could go tyre testing as well, that was a, there was loopholes. There was it wasn't nailed down as much as it is now, but you know it, the technical side was full on factory. Both groups of people, whatever they could do, rehomologations and whatever, that was that was kind of the game in the old days. It's what they did, and don't let's not forget those guys had the tires that worked more often uh, than anybody else. Some tracks not, which was another factor that that came into play during the year. Uh, guys, before we get through the season, I want to skip real quick to uh, an interview, though, that you did, Steve, with uh, Neil Hodgson and listen to a little bit of him talking about the difference between the tires and, and the build up to the season. So let's let's play that right now. So, that yeah, that season was obviously just about those two riders. Uh, you know the story, obviously, how it all went. How, how I saw it from my point of view was it was... Surprise! This will surprise people. Two thousand two was the best year for me riding a motorcycle. I rode um, better than I than I rode in two thousand and three. Believe it or not, the difference was um, the factory sort of Michelin tires were just off the scale. Dunlops, I was on Dunlops. Troy and Colin were on Michelins. If I'd have been on Michelins, I'd have definitely had wins. I'd have been. It'd have been a different story. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I'd have won the world championship. To be totally honest, you know what I'm like? I probably wouldn't have, but I'd have been right in the mix. But uh, the Michelin worked hard that year and just kept bringing new stuff and new stuff. And the, the tyres didn't go off. So a lot of the times I'd be up in the mix, in the race, having a bit of a lead. But by the end of, you know, by the the last five, ten laps, I was half a second a lap off to, or up to a second a lap off with the thing just spinning and sliding. It was only when I got on Michelin's the next year that... I, as I got on them, I remember thinking, I can't believe how crap these Michelins are. I thought they were going to be really sticky. But then I, what I realised is that was what they'd felt like from lap one to lap 28. It was bizarre. They just stayed exactly the same. So you could really understand them. So um, there's that. You can use that bit. Also, there were certain things happened that year that 
Um, obviously, Bayliss took control early on, but when Colin took control in that second half of the season, watching what changed a lot f- for Colin was he, he got a different front tyre, I think, that seemed to suit him because he did all the development for Michelin. So he was always on their test track at, in, out in France. But he, uh, he grew in confidence and he turned into just like I'd say, he turned into McDoan where FP1, he'd go out, on, this is the second half of the season, and he would just destroy everybody. And at the time, it was the, the more he destroyed people on the track, he sort of, the more he destroyed them off it because then he'd always have a beer in his hand. He didn't do any training. And at the time, Troy was getting really stressed and Troy was training really hard. So that I, I saw all this happen. And afterwards, you look back at it and think, but yeah, Colin was really clever. So yeah, Colin played some real good psychological games. Everyone got on, but I could I could just see it because Troy was a machine when it came to training, all his cycling. And like Colin would be like, oh man, I'm just having a few beers, might do a bit of rock climbing, have a game of tennis. But, you know, I, I'm not doing any training. Why would I do that? So quite interesting. Big thank you to Neil Hodgson for, for talking to us on the show. Um, let's, let's start at the beginning. Gordo, talk to us about the early rounds and how the season got underway and what the feeling was when you were there. Uh, the feeling was that ultimately that season was a kind of t- deciding match, but between the riders and between the factories, um, that was the kind of anticipation that we were all waiting on. Um, and that's the, at the beginning, it looked as if it was going to be just uh, Ducati's season and Bayless's season because every time, I mean, Colin was getting very good results, but he was always just behind Troy in the vast majority of the races and that had to bring a different mindset out in him and the Honda guys they had to play a kind of patient game so it was a little bit strange it was a kind of tense start to the year Um, and it it built up it it built the tension towards the end because there was a sudden change in the middle up to Laguna it just looked all over and even after race one in Laguna would you expect Colin to use whatever advantage he would get riding at home? Even after the first race, it didn't happen. But in between that first race and the second race, it all changed. Partly psychological, obviously the, the, the team could work on setup stuff. But that was a kind of change. And also Ducati made a you know made changes to the bike that, that Bayless didn't really like. So they started taking his bike away from him. So just as Colin was getting to that point of confidence, the eight hour be coming to, towards a close, it was going the other way for Bayless. And another thing that was very noticeable for him was that was a year that they did the video, they did the Troy story, uh, Toy Story, Troy Story video, um, and he was having people following him around. So and he didn't really like that. He's just such an ordinary guy. He was having lots of video time and and so on. It was you know there was a lot of factors at play and obviously the anticipation of that he was going to win the championship and then the bike slightly goes away from him um, to the point of uh, building up to Laguna was the first big change and then Acid was the really big change so through the season it was very tense I would say that described as a tense season more than anything else yeah, I always found Laguna to be an interesting one because we do always look at that as being the turning point Gordo because Edwards picked up that win and then suddenly he wins nine on the bounce to finish the season. But whenever you're 
working in paddocks, the big thing that a lot of crew chiefs and riders always talk about is the weekend scores. Did you outscore your opponent over any given weekend? Laguna, Edwards still didn't outscore Bayless that weekend because it was a first and a second for Troy and it was a third and a first for Edwards. But we all look at it as being, oh, that's the, the moment where it all started to turn for Colin. Yeah, but it's because he had to dig a result out. He, he just had to. Psychologically, emotionally, uh, technically, he, he just had to get a result in that second race. He just determined that it was, it was was that was the end. He was going to start winning. Um, and I think that boosted his confidence, which had obviously been taking such a battering. You know, he'd been a world champion and then the Ducati and Bayless were beating him every weekend. Um, that doesn't do a good thing to any rider's psyche. Uh, and especially after race one, you just managed to turn it all around for race two. That's why people see it's such a big change. Yeah, no, it was strange as well, Gordo, because when you think back to that time, obviously Colin had already won a championship. Troy was the reigning world champion. But... At that stage, Edwards had been an established rider in World Superbikes in, in Europe for five or six years. Everyone knew he was good, but up until he won his championship, he was always that inconsistent rider. He was always viewed as being almost a nearly man. And then he wins the championship and people always look at it and say, ah, oh, well, in 2000, it was only those last couple of rounds where he really came good. 2001 was actually the year where a lot of people look back and say that's where he made a big step forward. But when you look at Troy, he came in as Foggy's replacement and was immediately at the front of the field, immediately winning races, immediately able to win a championship. And it was just a contrast between two reputations as well in 2002. Yeah, and as you say, the more experienced guy was uh, very much Colin. Um, Bayless is just such a natural rider. The way he goes about it, he just rides a bike hard. He's got a lot of talent and he relies on the technical guys to uh, help him go faster. Whereas Colin was a bit more tyre testing, feel the bike, and then go for it in the races. So, yeah, it was basically a, a, a real showdown from the beginning with, with two... They're quite similar guys in their own way. They both appear to be kind of laid back. I mean, Colin's a bit more obviously kind of, you know, Texan. Um, but, you know, they're both super motivated human beings, but... Um, the reputation thing, yes, I think very much so. Colin needed to have, needed to come out on top of that, or it might have affected the rest of his career because it took him so long to become champion, um, and and then some guy comes and takes it off him. So, I I think that the psychology of that season is someone that cannot be downplayed with it. With two, it's like two really good boxers, and each round was a round. And one guy won a few rounds, another guy won a few rounds, and then a final points decision. That's the way I think of that year. It was such a them. Those two guys were miles ahead of anybody else, even after two or three rounds. It was just going to be them. And that was it. Steve, I wanted to go back to what you were saying about Laguna Seca. Obviously, as an American, that's a round for me that that plays very heavily into this uh, this season, just below Imola. Um, I always think of... of racing especially with world superbike has momentum and i think I, I mean i would agree with you with the points for the weekend you know colin came out behind he actually lost points to troy in in the championship that weekend but i think the fact that he won the second race instead of the first race is is hugely important because 
that psychologically gives him that mindset of like, okay, now I'm on the right path. Now I'm beating him. I had to come from behind and win in front of my home crowd. You know, that spurs him to go into, you know, the next four rounds of the season with a little bit more, I don't know, swagger in his step. Um, whereas if it had been maybe him winning race one and losing race two, maybe you don't walk away from Laguna feeling quite as strong. Like you always, you always remember your last race, right? Well, the one thing to remember about it as well is, and whenever I was doing a bit of research on this year, I was reading a lot of what Gordo wrote in 2002, and uh, he talks an awful lot about Laguna race one being where Edwards, after that race, Gordo, the head was fried. It looked for the first time that things were just getting the better of him. And when you look at that race, you think, okay, well, there was three weeks before Laguna, from Mizano to Laguna. So there's three weeks for Colin to just think about winning at home. He gets beaten in race one. And the emotional toll of that at the time, Gordo, seemed that it had really taken its toll on him. But then a couple hours later, he manages to get himself together, get his thoughts collected, get himself calmed down and get the win at Laguna. And just to go from those low to high, suddenly it gave him that bit of momentum once we went back to Europe, because suddenly you go to Brands Hatch, you do the double. And then, as Jensen says, the momentum really starts to build. And one of the things that we talked an awful lot last year, Gordo, when again, we looked at one guy on a red bike that went out and won a lot of races at the start of the year before eventually being caught. We, we talked an awful lot about how in racing, you're either applying pressure or you're under pressure. Going to Laguna, Colin was under pressure. But from Laguna onwards, he's able to apply that pressure onto Troy. That's right. And having such a big lead, you don't want it to suddenly be eaten away again. You know, a lot, basically, Troy seems to think that the main problem he had that year is that they changed the bike. So the feel of the bike, which is what somebody like him lives on, changed and it became more stiff, and he doesn't like a bike that's stiff. He likes a bike that's moving, it's his style, and it gives him lots of feedback. So he lost feedback from the bike, whereas Colin started making his package stronger. When you add that together with the the, the, the motivation, the, the sudden breakthrough to winning when you really needed to win, um, that tells you the story of, of, of how it was possible to do it at the end of the year. But the pressure, the balance of pressure definitely changed. Right after that, and then of course going to Brands Hatch, Colin felt fantastically confident because he knew he would go well there, um, and and it just kept building. And yeah, it's exactly the way, right way to think about it is that the pressure suddenly changed, and it's such a fickle thing. It's confidence. It's, it's end of the day, racing is a human endeavour. There's always a technical side, but the human thing is the most important. Even back then, now, always, it's the human beings that count. Finally, Gordon, I, you know, I'm actually really excited that you're on the show because I get to, I get to pick your brain a little bit on, on, on some of my kind of favorite bits about world superbike history, because for me this season, it's about Troy and it's about Colin, but it's also about the bikes that were on the green. It's about the machinery. I'm so fascinated about what was going on in world superbike with the rules, the way the manufacturers were responding and the different solutions that they were coming up with in terms of you know, figuring out what the the winning package was. You have 1,000cc twins going against 750 uh, four-cylinders. You have the Benelli triple in there. We see Aprilia with its RSV, with its RSV Miele. You see Ducati with, uh, obviously, its superbike platform. 
the 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 Honda, the SP2, that's one of my favorite motorcycles of all time, I think. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the different packages that were on the grid, uh, what their advantages were, what the riders were talking about in terms of technical technical senses, and and kind of who had the advantage on, on any given day. Sure. Um, the biggest thing back then was it was very obvious, just because the way the rules were, the technical rules were, uh, you needed to have a V-twin. That's why Honda built one. They need. They realised that 754, even a highly tuned one, even a factory one, was the more difficult thing to do. The main reason for that is displacement, but the other thing is tyre wear. A twin, as long as it's not too highly tuned, will always give tyres an easier time than an equivalent four-cylinder. And when the four-cylinder is a 750, and you have to really rev it to make the power then you're making more of a hit every time the power band comes in on the on the contact patch of the rear tyre. So the twins gave the tyres an easier time. The twins were tw- 250cc more. They were full factory. Uh, Aprilia had a fantastic twin. The tyre thing was the, the, the most important thing back then and part of the reason why we actually moved towards control tyres in World Superbike before most other big championships is if you didn't have factory Michelins, you weren't going to win the championship. But if you went to certain racetracks like Sugo, um, some others through the year, Dunlops were the tyres to have. You were going to, they did more testing there, they had a better history there, the construction or whatever it was they had in the tyre worked better. So you'll notice there's a couple of blips in the um, in the results. Um and ultimately, that's to do with um, w- with tyres as well. Sometimes the Dunlop guys just did a lot better. Um, it was the twins were the ultimately twins were the only thing you could win on at that stage in World Superbike. And before we went to thousand cc four cylinders, it kind of remained that way. Um, it was a hard way to do it. The hard way to do it is racing a seven fifty. And if you look at the, the final results, you see how much it's skewed towards the twins. And that's that's just the way it was in World Superbike at that time. And tyres. Michelin put far more effort into the tyres than the other manufacturers could or wanted to. That's that's the, the nutshell of uh, why things were technically um, in World Superbike at that time. Yeah, you go down, you look at the standings for the season, you have to go all the way down to ninth and find Chris Walker on the Kawasaki Otherwise, it's just a, a litany of, of twins. It's an, it's an interesting uh, you know, result to see. Um, why don't we take a minute and, and listen in on some audio that Steve did with Adrian Gorse. This is Colin Edwards' crew chief and kind of get a sense of the development work that they did to get the Honda to be competitive and to, to hone it against that Ducati. Um, right. 2002 was a battle between Colin and Troy. We never came up believing... We never gave up believing. We were struggling to beat Troy in the last, in the first half of the season. We were always there. The only race we did not finish on the podium was race one of round one. But we were getting beat normally in the last few laps. I would say to Colin, we can do this. Troy must be looking over his shoulder and thinking, I've won all these races, but they're still there. The desire never wilted. We went to all lengths to find the missing ingredient. I questioned Colin's fitness. Not because I didn't think he, that he was fit, but we were getting beat in the last couple of laps. At Laguna, we won the second race after being in the position to win race one, but a small mistake 
four laps from the end meant that we finished second. So before Brands Hatch, we sent Colin to Lillichelle where they test all the Olympic athletes. And they then came to Brands and monitored them all weekend. Latchlow's levels, heart rate, etc. And they came back with his physical fitness was very, very, very good. Um, we done the double that weekend at Brands. So we felt yeah, great. We've now won three races in a row. Um, when they came back and said his physical fitness was really good, we then discussed his mental fitness. Was there anything that could help there? You know, we were getting beat in the last couple of laps. Was it that we were, you know, not strong enough mentally? Um, we also, after Brands and uh, the 8-hour, we got an upgrade for the bike, which was a different exhaust and a couple of other little tiny bits. And we went to Ladue because there was a bit of a gap and we'd been on the 8-hour. Um just to get ourselves back in the in the groove, uh, which was Michelin's test track. We tried a couple of tyres there, um, and uh, nothing came out of it, but it was just confirmed some stuff we'd done. And we also just worked on some electronics to match the new performance upgrade that we had from HRC, which was mainly just the new exhaust. We just tried to keep the pressure on Troy and tried to force the mistake. And obviously, you know, after winning at the second race at Laguna and then the double at Brands. We then went on and done the double with the the next uh, two rounds as well. Um, so we ended up with, I think, was winning the last nine races. Yeah, so that was it, that was it really. Neil had made a really, Neil Tux had made a really good um, decision to nominate Imola as our test track at the start of the season when you're only allowed one circuit that you raced on. Um, and that meant that before Imola the last round, we went to um, Imola for a test. And uh, obviously then we, as history knows, we'd done the double that weekend at Imola, even when Colin didn't have to. He put everything on the line in the last few laps of that second race. He didn't have to win that race to be world champion, but he wasn't going to get get beat in that one. Cheers. All right, great. Thank you to Adrian for taking the time to talk to us. Um, guys, I think we need to move forward and talk about you know the the race that we all want to uh you know effuse about because imla is uh it is one of those races in in kind of motorcycle history that will probably forever be you know at the top of you know top race lists of all time uh sort of stature so um gordon why don't you give us an intro on on where the season was going into the final round well we had just uh, left Aston in the netherlands um and ultimately, there was another double for Colin there, but um, very tellingly, Troy Bayliss uh, no-scored in the, the second race uh, because he had the same problem through the weekend. He actually had two crashes, basically the same, one of them in a race and one of them in practice. So he he suddenly went from being in a good position to, to being behind, and it was all going to be uphill from then on. So the whole dynamic that we'd seen all year changed. So coming from Aston, which they both should have left being first and second, whichever way they finished, we suddenly had a, a big jump in the points and a changeover. And that is what really made such a high anticipation for the final round, especially because we went to Imola, not just because of the racetrack, not just because we were having this man-to-man fight at the end, but because it was in Ducati's backyard. Ducati expected to, to go to Imola even with a points deficit and still win. The, the factory sure. bosses expected Bayless to win and Bayless felt that he, he, he was capable of winning. And 
Bayless is not unhappy about the the way he raced. He, he's he was happy about the way he raced at Imola, um, but ultimately he, he didn't quite win. So, you know, the run up to that race was could have been either rider. It really could have been either rider. We didn't know what was going to happen, and especially the fact that we went and raced in Ducati's backyard was maybe the most exciting thing at that time. A lot of people were assuming that, well, it's going to be a great weekend for Bayless there. Uh, yeah, and uh, Gordo, when you look at um, what happened coming up to him, obviously in Assen, Troy just had a nightmare weekend in a lot of ways just because he has a crash in practice. He'd already picked up a couple of injuries through the course of the season. I think a Brands Hatch, he cracked a rib and suddenly at Assen you have a crash in the warm-up. Then in race two, he just crashes out of a very safe podium spot. It just seemed that he was pushing a bit too hard or took his eye off it or you know whatever, but it really was the turning point on the championship because suddenly it went from being where both of these riders were on the pretty much on the podium every race to the one time through the season where there was a non-score on either boot. Yeah, and it's feel it's the feel of the bike. He, he just wasn't happy acid. He, he was having to push. He wasn't getting the feedback he wanted from the bike. And somewhere like Assen, when you're 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 going fast, you've got all those uh, big flowing corners. He ended up not being able to 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 use the bike the way he wanted and got frustrated. He ended up making a mistake through frustration. Um, yeah, if he, he if he could wind back time, he would do anything except have another crash. But when you're when you're a racer like him and you're fighting for a world championship, it's easy to just take that little step too much. But that's all it was, was just a mistake under pressure. That And it's very interesting, Colin also feels that he put him there. He he feels that he built pressure on Troy to to hope that he cracked, and he, he kind of did. He, did. he just made one mistake, and that was enough. Yeah, and it was interesting even just if you listen back to what Hodgie said at the start of the show, whenever he was talking about the mind games that Colin was playing with Troy. Troy's working so hard in his fitness. He's just absolutely killing himself. And in fairness, Gordo, you still see Troy doing that. Whenever we were in Phillip Island only a few weeks ago, he still looks fitter than a butcher's dog. And he's still working as hard as ever. And Troy, on, uh, Colin, on the other hand, was sitting back. He was chewing his tobacco. He was having a beer. He's sitting outside the front, front of his motorhome, just making sure that everyone knows, you know what? I'm comfortable where I'm at right now. Yeah, I mean, as I say, the... Both both guys are very different characters. They 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 are equally laid back as each other, um, but it just showed that Troy was just kind of yeah no problem you know kind of guy. But even somebody like him could get be got to, and I think Colin and and the the, the pressure he put on did finally get to him, especially because it wor- wasn't working in his camp. It wasn't like he could fall back to something. Oh, I know my bike does this because they made changes to the bike and stiffened it up. He, he he couldn't go back to the happy place, so he was having to ride something away he didn't want to, um, and and that mm-hmm. all those things mm-hmm. added together ended up being Colin's uh, approach worked, and Troy ended up being the one that broke first. Moving to to Emma Gordon, set the stage in terms of of what's going to happen in race one for us because, you know. I think that's the race that kind of gets overlooked when we talk about this season because the the finale was so grand. But race one was a good a good a good race to watch as well. Yeah, the whole time there was the, the, just the two of them um, running, keeping an eye on each other, going as fast as they could. Obviously, that 
the whole idea for, for Bayless was to try and get other people involved in the fight. So he would be trying to slow things up to get other riders to come through. Um, he tried it even more in the second race, but it was just at a place like that where there's so, such a, a a million different places to outbreak each other, to push each other. With the crowd, I mean, the crowd were, both riders will tell you that it's one of the few races that they remember the crowd, the noise, the flags being waved, you know, hearing people roaring if they tried to make a, a passing manoeuvre. Both of them say that was part of the reason that became such a special round. Race one um, just built up the tension even more. Yeah, and Imola was an interesting one as well, Gordo, because as you said, it was basically one of those races where the crowd really get involved, but the bikes worked so differently that it was almost a microcosm of the season. You had one half the track that worked really well for Bayless, one half the track that worked really well for Edwards. The first half of the lap, Bayless was terrific but from the top chicane to the end of the lap it was all about the Honda and it really was a case of these two bikes that pretty much generate the exact same lap time these two riders that pretty much couldn't be separated and the whole way through that final race we saw that again it was all playing out with two riders strong in different areas two riders just trying to somehow find a way to get it done Colin always said that uh, once if he could get stay ahead of uh, Troy into the Variante Alta then it was his because he knew he was stronger in that final section there was just nothing that Bales was going to be able to do to pass him and that's what happened and obviously Troy had a little bit of a, a blip on that final lap just pushing and that's what stopped him challenging before then so once I mean we never you never knew who was going to win until the line was crossed and the thing was really finished but Colin kind of knew that on the last half a lap of that race, he said, "No, oh, this is mine to this is mine to lose." You know, he he knew that everything was going to be okay. The challenge of Zeus that was there had disappeared off, um, so it was just those two guys. And, and Colin knew that he had the part in the second half of the race of the lap. He knew it was his. Yeah, and that's the other thing that was great about this race as well, Gordo, because a bit like Bayless's crash in Assen, where again, there's no. There's no way he was going to settle at any stage other than trying to close down gaps, trying to make sure he was getting the most from himself and his bike. Imola was another one of those races where Edwards could easily have settled. He could easily have sat behind Troy those final couple of laps whenever they'd broken away from Zeus. But instead, he really wanted to rubber stamp the championship with another race win. Yeah, he did. And part of that actually goes back to his first world championship winning season when it all... There was one of his rivals getting banned through uh, anti-doping rules. You know, it wasn't exactly underlined, his first world championship. So he wanted to, just typical of his character, he wanted to not just win the championship again because he kind of won the first championship in slightly strange circumstances. So this time he just really wanted to do it. He just said, okay, I want to win. It's just part of his character. Um, yeah, his team manager would have liked to have talked about of it, but at the end of the day, there's only one person on the bike, and he he wanted to win it in style. He, he was quite adamant about that that he really wanted to win it and be no doubt that he deserved to win it. And I think that a lot of that goes back to two years before. I don't think that Ruben was in the place that you know team orders would really come into effect, but it is of note that the other riders that would be able to disrupt what was going on between Colin Troy were were primarily Ducati riders. Yeah, but the the end of the day, the pace is the pace. Those two guys were just faster than most people all year. Um, th- there was no other Ducati rider that looked as if he was genuinely capable 
at that track on the setup um, to be able to to interfere in it. Yeah, because it's interesting as well, Gordo, when you look at that season, obviously, Hodgie the next year goes on to win his world championship and a bit like Troy dominates at the start of the year, uses that as his foundation for a championship. But when you look at some of the riders that were on the grid then as well, there's circumstances that go into creating Bayless and Edwards being so far ahead of everyone else. You've got Haga moves on to a, a an Aprilia. So for the first time in his career, he's on a twin. You've got the Dunlops being used by the likes of Hodgie, who was riding great that year. You've got uh, Keeley coming towards the end of his career. You've got a lot of riders like Bostrom as well that had been a race winner, a serial podium man, but suddenly just couldn't quite match what what he was seeing from Edwards and Bayless and he goes off the boil. So there was a lot of circumstances that sort of also played into just having Bayless and Edwards have that big advantage. Yeah, and it goes back to that, that thing about the two number one riders and the number one factory teams at that time in World Superbike were Honda and Ducati. And they had very definite uh, number one riders through various reasons, but ultimately... That was the the push was on those guys. The expectation was on those guys, and they had reached that point in their career where they were ready to 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 push each other as hard as they could consistently all year. Um, and the, part of the reason we ended up with that amazing finale is that it, to me it was always going to be those two guys, all, even at the beginning of the year. And there was such a kind of grudge match going on between Honda and Ducati to be the best twin. Remember, Honda moved into Ducati territory. And beat them two, as it turned out, two years out of three. You know, Ducati really wanted to win. They really wanted to show that they could beat Honda, and they did one year out of those three. So it was all those dynamics. If if Bayless was the guy that was going to be the biggest challenge, then everyone was going to go to him. Not just the expectation, but you would imagine parts, uh, tire choices. Everybody working towards giving him the best tire, the best setup. So it's full factory in a way that we've only just kind of returning to in World Superbike now, except now we've got far fewer things you can do to the bikes. There's far fewer things the factory can bring. Then there was a lot more freedom to bring real racing parts and um, higher price technology that just doesn't exist anymore. Special things, what things develop for one rider in his style. Gordo, do you think that aspect of, of Superbike racing and how it's changed has diminished the championship or the series or, or changed it substantially because you know I, I i look back and i think one of the things i really liked about the superbike championship back then was that these were you know they were production bikes but they were the unobtainium of production bikes these were you know bikes that were hundreds of thousands of dollars of parts and development that you would never see on the street and i it kind of made it a little bit more special in my mind yeah but the problem is that in the day back then when MotoGP was two-stroke and they were still the faster bikes, that was the kind of, you know, prototyping thing. So you could have as much freedom as you liked in, in four-stroke engineering and World Superbike. The factory's only outlet for their four-stroke engineering was actually in World Superbike. And then when that changed, everything changed. So that's why the prototype that engineers doing development that would feed into road bikes and stuff all moved over lock, stock and barrel to MotoGP. So the necessity, if you like, from the manufacturer side to make World Superbike machines more special just stopped. It just all went to MotoGP and, and added extra money that they would never have dreamt of spending on Superbike. 
for for those pure racing bikes. Yes, I mean, I, I kind of miss the day when you saw something going past you and you think, well, there's only two of them in the world, you know. But at the end of the day, it is supposed to be production racing. Did it, to me, the, we've actually got a very, very good balance between stock and a bike that you can recognise and go and buy on Monday and the the high-performance racing material that that we have right now in World Superbike. I think things have never been more even in a technical sense. And you look at almost any part of the bike now, everybody's on the same playing field. They're all got four cylinders. They're all 1,000cc. Um, yes, it's a shame to lose the technology, but it was inevitable. It was absolutely inevitable when MotoGP went four-stroke that all that special stuff in Superbike would just go across the road. And that's what happened. You know, I, like I was saying before, you know, one of, one of the aspects of this season or this point in time in World Superbike history is, for me, the, the bikes and the machines that were being produced from it. Um, you know, this is this is you know just one season away from from seeing the Foggy Patronus bikes, which you know for me captivated my imagination a lot. Having the Benelli out there, like seeing the sport move from this to a series that's really dominated by you know V four and inline four engines, you know it. I, I, I kind of bothered by it. It's not as interesting. I agree, and and it would be nice if there was all these different engine formats that were competitive, but. The problem in World Superbike is ultimately we race with the manufacturer's build. And we have to do that. And, you know, partly because of uh, how fast they theoretically go on the road, um, everybody's ended up with the same performance package. A V-twin Ducati, even at 1200cc, ended up not being fast enough. Well, that's not just a racing thing. That's a kind of, it's got to look good in the, the, the performance thing on the road. They built a, a four-cylinder, partly for racing, but also partly because they needed to be just as fast as the guys that have got a four-cylinder thousand. So it, it's a strange world, Superbike. It's not a world on its own. It's a world that's influenced by the commercial side, and the commercial side is influenced by the racing side. It's kind of hand-in-hand, hand, but there's so many other things nowadays, and, and the drop in the market as well. If there was a huge sports bike market in the world, people would probably be making more different bikes, but everybody sooner or later ends up with the, the ideal package under the rules. And if you're going to limit people for putting special race parts in, then you ain't going to have a triple or V-twins anymore or something else. And you can't go, you can't build a five. It's just not allowed. So, yeah, I think things are much more interesting from a technical point of view back then. But all the kind of kooky bikes that have come to World Superbike, the weird bikes, haven't been competitive. So yeah. inevitably, they were going to have to go by the wayside. If someone was able to build a 900 triple that would take on everything in World Superbike, fantastic. But it was actually the wrong compromises. It'd have allowed them to be 1,050cc and maybe they would have a better showing rather than 900. So, you know, but yeah, things were more interesting then. Absolutely. The technology was fantastic back then. Everybody was going about it in a slightly different way. Everybody still does now. You've got a V4, you've got the uh, cross-plane crank Yamaha, you've got Honda deciding they come back as a full factory team with a straight four. Everybody assumed they would build a V4, so that's interesting in its own way. You know, every, everybody does things their own way, but with a lockdown, if you'll pardon the pun, if the lockdown of the rules over the last few years and trying to even things out has worked very well, the trouble is that's always going to lead to 
the same engine format being dominant, one engine format being dominant over the others. It's just engineering. It's just what happens. Look at MotoGP. Steve, I wanted to ask you, it's interesting to me that we're talking about this particular race, this particular season, going into the 2020 you know, World Superbike Championship. We've only had one race, obviously, this season so far. But, you know, knock on wood, we'll see some more racing later this year. But it is, it does feel kind of like history re-repeating, especially with Ducati now on the other side of the coin, going from the, the V2 to the V4. Uh, we saw how it was last season. It really felt like going into this season, like we were finally going to see maybe Ducati reclaim the championship after so long. Um, with this this gambit, really, of of building a, a production bike that you know they're maybe not even making money on on the retail side, so they can go win this championship. Yeah, well, I sort of disagree with some of what Gordo was saying there because the last Ducati twin, when you talk to a lot of engineers in different superbike paddocks, whether it's in the British Championship, whether it's in the World Championship, they do all say the same thing. That twin was more than fast enough to win the championship in world superbikes and even now ducati engineers still tell you that the twins still fast enough to win the british championship if uh, if it's run by the right team so i think ducati changes the v4 it was inevitable but i think that it's a little bit different compared to when honda changed to the twin because when honda changed the twin suddenly they found out actually the rules have been slanted against us for a very long time in terms of a 750 versus a thousand and uh, suddenly they had a lot more torque in the engine suddenly they had a lot more performance and as gordo said they also then had the benefits of being able to be a little bit lighter on their tires and things like that whereas i think in the recent years where it was a 1200 twin versus a thousand four cylinder i think that the rules were a little bit more level for want of a better word compared to what they were at the turn of the century but yeah i can see what you're saying as well jb because this is a big year or last year was a big year for ducati to try and make those big changes to try and win back the championship i i I think that the 1200 had reached its course you had to rev them so high you lost all the advantages of a twin so you ended up having the same power and good power at the top but you had to rev it it had to be so over square it was riding like a two-stroke the, the riders at the top end were saying it was like a two-stroke. Now, it might be able to be winning in, in BSB, that's fine, but it's a different level. When you're talking about having to beat a 1,000cc four-cylinder with a guy who's winning multiple champions on it, that's a, that that's what it takes to win World Superbike. Not be competitive and win races. To be the world champion, I don't think a twin uh, would be competitive. Not the one Ducati had. And you would have to build something ground up. But then, on the other hand, Gordo, did you see anyone being able to beat Jonathan Ray for a lot of that time? Because as great as Chaz Davis was able to ride at different times with the twin, generally speaking, when Chaz was on his great runs, it was when the pressure was already gone. He had made mistakes earlier in the year in, say, 2016, when then suddenly you win seven of the last eight. And it gives you that momentum for the next year. But he never really had that full season where he avoided making mistakes or he was able to put that pressure on on Johnny. I think if if we had had Johnny on a different bike, that uh, Ducati twin probably would have won championships. And I think we'd look at it in a different light compared to how we have to look at it now. Uh, I don't think there was anything um, in the Kawasaki particularly that makes it a better bike than anything else. I think it's the, 
it's the package they build around it. It's the the approach they have to it. And, you know, I, I just don't see the Kawasaki as the technical tour de force bike in that paddock. I think what it is is good enough at every track to let somebody like the background engineers and Jonathan, he's got enough performance and then they bring all the rest. I think the trouble with the Ducati was it was a difficult bike. And it, look, at they went from winning a world championship with Checa and then they move on to this new Panigale. Fantastic thing. Quite amazing technically, but difficult from day one. And every time they made it a bit faster, it got a bit more tricky. And they, to me, they just kept chasing problems around. And that's what I mean about it. The, 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 they went in a direction they had to go and it ended up being, to me, not consistent enough every weekend to allow any rider to, to challenge for the World Championship. And part of that as well goes down to the fact that they only ever really had one lead rider. You always had a big gap between Chaz and his teammates whenever they were competitive. Whether it was Melandry, he might be really quick at Phillip Island, but then he'd be off the pace for a couple of rounds. Then he'd win at Mizano and then he'd be off the pace again, whether it was Giuliano. There was always that big gap between Chaz and his teammates that it sort of put them down a development path for Chaz's style. And everyone knows what Chaz is really strong and he's great on the brakes. He's really aggressive on the way into the corner. And, you know, his style puts them into a hold as well where they have to focus on being able to get the most out of that. Whereas maybe when you look at you know the turn of the century, whenever there was a lot of riders out there in a Ducati, they had to be a little bit more balanced with how they were developing the the nine nine eight at different times. And then, you know, that plays into where you had numerous riders at the front on a Ducati with a package that was really strong. Yeah, but the bike was just much more competitive back then. The you know the the bar wasn't as high. And any other bike to, to, to catch. The Ducati was always competitive until they built the Panigale. And then it just became a bit too tricky. It's just too tricky, that bike. And part of the reason is that they had to to maintain the, any kind of performance in a straight line and the punch out of corners. They had to go bigger capacity and they had to go much uh, more over square. It's difficult. A twin doesn't want to be ridden like that. And I think that's what was ultimately one of the things that was wrong. There's many more things than that. But I just believe that was a level below a 1,000cc four-cylinder. Yeah. No, if I can echo that point, Gordon, as someone that's had to ride these the, the production version of these machines quite a bit, that's always the thing that struck me the most about the Super Quadro engine was that it was a motor that had to be ridden at its maximum, at the top of its rev range, with, with a lot of effort. That, that was a bike that got better the harder you pushed it, but you couldn't give it you know, 75, 80% like you could with more classic Ducatis where where I feel like the V-twin engine was more uh, approachable as a rider than, say, an inline four and had that that benefit of having a much larger power band and a broader torque curve. But that all went away with the Super Quadro as they started chasing the horsepower of the inline fours, and it made it an extremely difficult machine to ride. And then you throw in the different chassis uh, components that Ducati was playing with, and you have a very interesting recipe for a motorcycle. Uh, very different than, say, what we were seeing in, in you know, uh, almost 20 years ago with, with the twin platforms. Yeah, and I mean, I think it all goes back to it was such a radical design, incredibly desirable, completely doing things their own way, but like the Benelli or the Foggy Patronus, it was just not really right. It just wasn't quite enough. Um, and yeah, maybe another rider would have made a different job of it. But I just think, as I say, I'm only talking about 1% here. 
But 1% less than being able to truly compete all season is enough, especially when you've got the greatest of all time, five-time world champion in the other corner. I mean, without Jonathan and without Kawasaki and that team, etc., yeah, there probably could have been world championships available. But, you know, Tom Sykes won a world championship on a Kawasaki. It's not just what you know. It's not just one thing. It's not one person. Um, I just think the Ducati became tricky. The the twelve hundred twin became tricky, and I think it would be tricky for anyone to do. And someone who shall remain nameless, but used to work at a high level of Ducati, said, "If they let me build a four cylinder, no problem. We'll we'll take these guys." That's basically what he was saying to me. Not on the record, unfortunately, yeah. but uh, you know they wanted to build a four. Because they knew that if they could build a four, they would be competitive. And look at how fast that Ducati is now. Still a bit tricky. Yeah. Still a bit difficult. Um, but, you know, you can't win the first 11 races last year and the bike be no good or flawed. You can't really say that bike is flawed. It's certainly enough. Something just changed. The dynamic changed last yeah. year. And look at Reading. You know, look at Reading this year. He's, that bike is obviously capable, for sure. I got to ride the Panigale V4R at Laguna Seca, and I can tell you, boys, it is worth every dollar of that $40,000 price tag. Every dollar. Perfect investment. And that's before they've even started working on it. We can only imagine, because even if we got to ride it, we can't take it where those guys do. So that's it. You know, it's, you're talking levels and levels and levels. I want to get us back on track, because this show's supposed to be about the 2002 season. We drifted a little bit. It's, a, it's okay. It's a good conversation. But... I want to get back to 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 the race that we that we want to talk about the most. Race two at Emila, Gordon. Did you get a chance to? I mean, I'm sure you did, but I'm wondering if you can recall what was going through the minds of of Troy and Colin as they got on the grid for race two. Um, obviously, it's do or die. But you know, what were their mindsets? What were their their thought process? And what were the people around them saying? Um, the Ducati bosses expected. Uh what by then was going to have to be a small miracle. Um, I think Troy realised that it was going to be very, very difficult because it wasn't just up to him and Colin anymore. He needed someone else to intervene. Um, it was certainly incredibly tense, but I think out of the two of them, the one that approached it with a greater degree of confidence was Colin. He he was, the way he talks about it now, it's like he was thinking his way through that race. He had everything planned up to it, including if he had to, if Troy did pass him, where he could actually pass him up the inside to make sure that Troy wouldn't be able to get past him again, even if they both went off, is the, the what he basically said. Um, he, he, I think, was approaching it far more cerebrally rather than um, in a kind of passionate thing. It all seemed, I think, if the race was in slow motion for someone, it was Colin. I think he was much less tense than Troy was um, because he knew what he had to do and he knew that it was, if, as long as he was with Bayless, it was going to be fine. Um, and that's what the, 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 their mindset was. Obviously, there was a complication that day with the, the red flag and everything else. That, that wouldn't have helped anybody. But um, at least it allowed everybody um, to reset again, to think again. But again, that just played more into to the hands of Colin. He just knew what he had to do even more. Steve, I, I know what my emotions were when I was watching this race. And I think, truthfully, I think it was the commentating that helped kind of build it up in my mind because coming into it so green and so kind of unaware of 
what had been going on, it was really the the TV presenters that framed that race for me. And I'm wondering how how you look back on it now as your role of a as a TV commentator for World Superbike, but also how you saw that race in the moment when you were you know just a fan. Yeah, well, at that stage, I was still in school. I was going into final year in school, and it would have been Sunday, so I would have still been waiting to avoid to do my homework and things like that. So, obviously, a good procrastination was always important on a Sunday afternoon, and a race like this was ideal for it. And, uh, yeah, like you said, JB, like we, you were watching it at home. It was when Superbikes was still on BBC, and you'd sit down, and it was on terrestrial telly, so you knew that everyone was going to be watching it. And... Uh, it was it was great because this was a season that, as we said earlier, it was just coming to that crescendo. And you knew that people that hadn't really been watching too much the racing would have been watching this one. They would have been watching Aston as well because it was something that was just gaining that little bit more appreciation with everyone. And like I said, because it was on BBC, everyone in the UK and Ireland was, well, pretty much everyone in Ireland was able to watch it. And uh, it you know, like you said, just the the commentary on it was good and everyone was able to really sense the excitement of what it was. And when you look at it nearly 20 years later, it's still good enough to to grab your attention. Yeah, no, it definitely holds up to the uh, the test of time. I Just for giggles, I watched it last night, I think for the third time this week. Um, you know, it's just classic. It's classic racing. It's classic overtaking, block passes, strategy. Um, and, I, and I think what strikes me at the end too is is there's still a good camaraderie between the riders. And and I feel sometimes with the way sport in general is going or the, or the way that we try and push motorsports sometimes to build controversy, to build conflict between riders within a team or riders uh, in a series, there's, there's always the competition level. There's always the, I want to you know rip that guy's head off on the track and beat him as, as well as I can. But there, there, what struck me about that race is that there was still uh, a decorum, and, I, and it made me realize like the product isn't necessarily the the drama that surrounds the races. The drama is taking place on the racetrack itself. Gordo, how much of that do you think also came down to the fact that like we've talked about it a lot about how superbike riders might not get the chance to move into MotoGP, and we see a lot of times where crew chiefs and engineers from superbikes moved to MotoGP. I think even at that stage, Aprilia was run by the Guidotti's and things like that. So there was a lot of people from that superbike era have found their way into the MotoGP paddock. But at that stage, Colin hadn't. He was still, obviously he moves in 2003 with Aprilia, but he had always felt a little bit slighted. He had always felt that MotoGP was a dream rather than something that was actually going to be achievable. Troy, of course, he's going to move up with Ducati for the next year. So both of them kind of know that they're moving on to MotoGP. Both of them know that they're going to get their opportunity. Both of them know that this could be the last time where they have that real wheel-to-wheel, bar-to-bar sort of action. And this was the culmination of three years for both riders where they were the class riders in the field before they move on to the next stage of their career. And if you, like, if you think back to when you were leaving school, there's always that feel-good atmosphere the day you graduate from, whether it was high school or college or anything like that, that everyone's got that sense of optimism. And that must have been the case as well at Imola for both of these guys. Oh, I think that um, it was amazing to see how even both of them were. 
um, afterwards when I went to speak to them. I think I spoke to Colin first and then Troy. Um, and yeah, they spoke about moving on. They spoke about this, you know, the, the next stage for them is going to be something different. Um, ultimately, it was a kind of end of days, whole season and weekend. Um, from point of view of the riders, from point of view of the machines, everything. It was a kind of end of a lot of things that, that day. Um, and what a way to make an end. It was an incredibly special day. I can't tell you what it was like. Imola is one of the most special racetracks in the world. Two of the best exponents has ever been at Superbike. Proper Superbike riders who said what they thought, who said what they felt, who couldn't be constrained by PR officers, or not very often, um, who had a beer afterwards, who would be at the Alstari party at 12 o'clock at night. Um, it was a different world. It was a literally different Sorry. Gordo, but how would you know they were there at 12 o'clock? You would still have been writing to deadline. I mean, the parties I arrived at at 2.30 in the morning when everybody was going home and I've arrived, walked past them and I'll go, <laughs> But I mean, Emily especially, Emily, I don't know what it was, we always ended up, there was always a big massive kind of party um, at Emily, in the smallest paddock imaginable, which is, you know, maybe made it even more atmospheric. But yeah, it was, it was very much a, there was a great sense of occasion I can't say it any more than that. And everywhere you looked and every level you looked, it was a sense of occasion in that, that weekend, culminating on the Sunday. Afterwards, the guys realised what they'd done. Okay, they're, they're racers and all they think about is the racing, but they realised what they'd done. They realised they were moving on. Um, maybe not sure for Colin at that time. I wasn't sure if that was all under uh, underlined by then. I am not, not can't quite remember. Um, but... It was just one of those days when you left, even though you're flat out working. As soon as it's all finished, you just start working, 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 and don't finish till late. We all knew that was a special day, and I've never seen a media centre with people standing up and applauding halfway through a race because somebody's just put in the third overtake in three corners. We were oohing and aahing just like the crowd. It was quite amazing. It was actually difficult not to watch the, that race as a kind of person at home, because at the end of the day, you're, you're doing a job. You've got to know what happened and and write things down and stuff. And it was just almost impossible not to just soak in that race and go, wow. So to be there and then go and speak to the guys afterwards, fantastic. I mean, it was it was, it was was one of those days I'll never forget. Never, never, never forget. Never. Uh, guys, it's been great to, to go down memory lane and talk about this show with you, obviously, or this talk about this race with you. Obviously, things are a little bit crazy right now in the racing world, but, um, you know, with, with races like that, we can only hope to see some more, you know, barnstormers in the future and hopefully we'll be back on the track soon. So, uh, Gordon, I want to thank you for, for taking the time to, to join us this week and, and to share your memories and your experience in the paddock, your, your, your lengthy resume, as it were. And, um, Steve, it's always good to see your face and to talk to World Superbikes with you. Yeah, it's always good to see my face on the radio. <laughs> well, my face is made for it. Um, no, thank you, guys. No, it was an absolute pleasure. It was such a great day. And um, hopefully we do get back to some great racing this year as well because Phillip Island was astonishing. Fantastic. As Phillip Island made me feel almost like it did at Imola in 2002. And, and I'm a jaded old guy, you know? So 
you know, I'm looking forward to whatever kind of season we do manage to get. I really am. No, it's it's fun to look back at kind of the golden years and, and see where we are now. And I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head with Phillip Island. It, it bodes well for where we are going forward in, into this season and into and the next seasons. And just where we are with the manufacturers, the, the level of ridership that we have in the paddock, the, the factory support that's coming into the paddock. Uh, I, I feel like there's good things ahead. Absolutely. I think it's going to be a great year if we get a year. I think it's going to be a great year. I'm holding on to it tightly. Believe you me, I'm holding on to it tightly. Uh, and with that, I would just like to remind our listeners to be sure to follow us on social media. Give us a rating and review if your podcasting platform allows you to do so. And of course, we have our Patreon page for those that want to help support the Paddock Pass podcast and to help continue uh, allowing us to put out shows like this one. Um, if you've got a couple of shekels left in your wallet at the end of this show, please uh you know, throw them our way on Patreon. We have some special content for you waiting there uh, to give you a little bit more behind the scenes, a little bit more of what's been going on um, into addition to what we talked about on today's show. So with that, boys, good talking to you, and I hope to see you out there. Yep. Thanks very much, JB.